You're listening to Old Timey Crimey, crimes from the golden age of yesteryear. Now, here are your hosts, Christy, Amber, and Scott. The 100th episode of Old Timey Crimey! Woo! Woohoo! I am Chris. I am psyched. Oh, How are you guys? <laughs> I guess I'm Scott. He supposes. He's, no. he doesn't some, count. Some, some days it's hard to tell. I want to throw a little shout out, though, uh, to our friend Cody. He, uh, he texted me the other day, and the only thing it said in the text was, like baby, uh, shot out babies like T-shirts out of a cannon. <laughs> so I'm glad somebody Thanks. listens to the show. Thanks, Cody. <laughs> Thanks, Cody. We also have a shout out for I'm just going to call him our <laughs> our show's BFF, Chris Garcia, who has gotten us the newspapers.com subscription that we mentioned a couple episodes ago. <laughs> And it is coming in so handy. Chris, thank you. Thank you so much. It's Chris your, is awesome. It's your fault, Chris, that this episode's gonna last four hours. I'm not gonna get to bed until two AM. <laughs> I'm just gonna I'm just gonna shut my camera off and go, Oh yeah, I'm still here. So, tits. <laughs> <laughs> that is right. So yeah, that it, it's just been been a wild ride and uh, here's i'm gonna raise my glass here is to 100 more you guys cheers cheers Chrissy, this Someone glass look familiar that. yeah that glass looks familiar that glass was made in my hometown i'm running short make me a few more <laughs> i would never go back to that factory if i you couldn't pay me enough while we're at Anyhow. Let's, let's send some people back to fix the pyramids up they're looking a little shoddy yes uh, real quick before we get into our case, don't forget, especially our new listeners, we know we have some some new old-timey, crimey people out there, so hello to you and welcome to your weekly dose of historical true crime. We have a Patreon, that is patreon.com slash oldtimeycrimey, and there at the $5 level, you can get access to our weekly bonus episodes where one of us tells the other two a story. We had a really fun one this week where right in the middle of it, I was telling the story. It was my research. And then Scott happened to glance to research something else. And he found something about a sheep experimentation station. So <laughs> learn some new things with us. Mm-hmm. Learn. Yeah. Come learn some new things with us over there. We also have our monthly bonuses. Those are our kind of more epic episodes where we'll do something a little different. We might look at crime and not really our normal realm, maybe in the 60s or the 70s. Sometimes we'll do just all of us go and troll the newspapers and not troll them, but troll them and no, find all kinds we'll of interesting them too. Uh-huh. <laughs> if it we'll wasn't for Donald Trump, you'd be out of business. Paper's a dead medium. <laughs> So yeah, there is tons and tons of content there. Come check it out. See if you like it. It's it's honestly, it's not a long-term commitment. You don't have to sign up for a year subscription or anything. You can just join at the $5 level. And if you, it turns out you don't like it or you know you don't have the money for it, no harm, no foul. But give it a try and I think you'll get hooked. So our episode this week, guys, back when I first came up with Old Timey Crimey, that, that day in the shower. <laughs> <laughs> as has been immortalized story <laughs> yeah i know but it's it's it, it's the truth 
this was one of the cases that popped into my head as a case I would like to cover. And so it feels right to be doing this for our 100th episode. We are going to be talking this week and next about Lizzie Borden. <laughs> Crazy chicks are hot. <laughs> now, first, we're going to give a little background on the town she came from, which was Fall River, Massachusetts. It became a big textile town in the 19th century and was, the, for a time, the leading textile manufacturer in the country. It has some nicknames, several, uh, well, three. The Scholarship City, okay. Spindle City, that makes more sense. And the City of the Dinner Pail. The city that Axe built. It has two, two mottos. One is, we'll try. <laughs> What, what even is that? What is happening there? We'll try. Okay. Eh, we'll try. <laughs> the other one is make it here. Do they mean like Which, fucking? Okay. No, I think they mean like a, your t-shirt. You can just make it there. Uh. Yeah. Uh, I was looking at famous people that came from the town and this is really weird. It, they have like, okay, so Emerald Lagasse, George Stephanopoulos, uh, and then you have Kristen Gilbert, uh, a serial killing nurse of the 1990s, and Kimberly Clark Sins, a serial killing nurse of the 2000s. Both there of them originated from Fall River. Yes. So it's all the motto should be serial killing nurses. We got them. It's almost we'll like try. the women there are driven to kill. You know what, though? Like, correct me if I'm wrong, but, but don't the uh, textile mills stink like ass? I know paper mills do. I don't know if textile mills do. But oh, you know, maybe I am thinking of the paper mills that I've driven past. It could be one of those things that locals get used to that. Like I grew up in a town with a refinery and my house was for the first eight years of my life was like four blocks from the refinery. And when I brought my husband home there at one point in time earlier in our relationship, he was like, What's that smell? God, what is that smell? And it was a periodic thing that the refinery would do uh, some sort of process that would generate a terrible smell. It wasn't all the time, but it was like every month or quarter or something like that. And I honestly didn't know what the hell he was talking about. I was like, what What smell? What are you talking about? He's like, that horrible smell. It took me like five minutes to be like, oh, yeah, the refinery. You're, that probably smells to other people, <laughs> but not to me. That's just what so, this town smells like. I don't know what you're talking about. That is what Exactly. I found this interesting. In 1832 in Fall River, uh, somewhere in the, the vicinity, they dug up a skeleton. It was a young man. He was about five foot six inches. He was actually found, he was buried, but he was found in a sitting position. So he, he hadn't been too damaged by exposure and he was wearing some brass armor. It was a breastplate plate and a belt. And they found parts of other skeletons nearby. And it has been theorized to death what the skeleton was. Native American, Phoenician, Egyptian, a Carthaginian explorer who was blow blown off course, an early colonist, just a hoax. <laughs> um, and But we'll never know, because in 1843 there were some fires started by two boys playing with a cannon and wood shavings. <laughs> why, why even mention the wood shavings? Seriously. <laughs> And it's really the cannon there. The cannon is the big operator. Yeah, I'm yeah. so jealous that they got a cannon. Not <laughs> only, not only did these boys be playing with the cannon, 
They also be be shaving wood. Yeah, those little devils. Like I just picture a bunch of guys going like shaving what? Is that a euphemism for something? <laughs> Two hundred and ninety-one buildings over twenty acres were destroyed in, in downtown Fall River. That included the custom house, hotels, churches, banks, and the post office, and the homes of two hundred families. God damn you wood shavers! Wow. <laughs> Speaking That's of impressive. Yeah. Yes. Most of, of most of those buildings were really old. I don't know why people were complaining. <laughs> they were also probably all built of wood. Yeah. <laughs> Speaking of Fall River families, the most famous family to originate in uh, Fall River was the Borden family. But uh, up until a certain point, it wasn't for uh, the reasons that it became. The specific family that we're talking about lived in a house just outside the center of town. It was 92 Second Street. And this family, the Bordens, in 1890s, they became very important in Fall River. And the family had been established for eight generations at that point. Like, that's, wow. yeah. They, the family bought some land. And the land had some mills on it in the 1700s. And that was before it became such a, a big center for industrial, uh, for, for industrial center for textiles. And that also gave the Borden family control over the water power until 1813. So there's buildings all over town with their names on them. It's, it's crazy. But this branch specifically is kind of the lesser branch of the family. They didn't have as much wealth and power as the cousins. Uh, Mr. Borden, Andrew Borden, his father had actually been a fish peddler. So, you know, this is a little bit kind of like not quite black sheep, but close to it. That's a really funny term, though, because like I initially pictured somebody riding a fish like a bike. I was gonna, I wasn't <laughs> going to say it. I figured it was low hanging fruit. I'll, I'll take the low hanging fruit. Yeah. I don't mind. So Andrew Borden started making cabinets and coffins, and he. <laughs> Sorry. Yeah. Yeah. No, I know. I hope that was the name of his store: cabinets and coffins. It was he. He joined with a partner, and they started uh, Crane's patented casket burial cases. I love that they were patented, and eventually he did become pretty important. He became the member of boards of directors of a lot of the big businesses in town. He bought lots of choice land, so he really built himself up from a fish peddler son to sort of a local tycoon almost. And he really worked hard for this. He worked fourteen-hour days. In the 1890s, a building of his was just about done. He was—he was. This was a big project he'd been working on for a long time. Two years of construction, and he had two daughters. Those were Emma and Lizzie Borden. They were born nine years apart. Emma being the oldest. Lizzie was born in 1860. Her middle name is actually her father's, so she's Elizabeth Andrew Borden. Her mother was named Sarah, and Sarah died when Lizzie was three. There was also a middle sister in there named Alice, but she died at age two. So just Emmy and Emma and Lizzie there. Now, Lizzie said she had no memory of her mother. And, you know, being so young, being three years old when Sarah died, that makes sense. So Emma, her big sister, being nine years older than her, was her only real maternal influence. And Emma had promised to care for Lizzie and really saw herself as Lizzie's mother. But Andrew remarried two years after being what I'm calling calling widowered. 
Widowed. If if you have widows and widowers, then you should have widowed and widowered. I'm just establishing that. He married Abby Durfee Gray. She was 37, and a lot of people thought she was beneath him, which is snobby. But people speculated that he was kind of looking less for a love match and more for somebody to keep the house clean, make sure the the daughters are clothed and fed and raised right. Uh, A grammar school principal said about Lizzie, quote, she was an average scholar, neither being exceptionally smart nor noticeably dull. So just kind of there. It was said that she was kind of moody growing up and was possibly depressive, but that's just a possibly, and, you know, we're diagnosing somebody in the past. That's the best way to do it. You know, if they die from a misdiagnosis, it's no big deal. Yeah. Now, both of the daughters in this family, at the ages of 32 and 41, were starting to look like it was pretty much going to be spinsterhood for them. Uh, The thing about that is that I find interesting. Their stepmother married their father at 37. So it doesn't seem like all hope should be lost if the example is right there. But the thing is that Andrew kind of seemed to be pushing away any possible suitors. He was really kind of possessive of the money and he thought that anybody coming after Lizzie was just after the money millionaire for that point in time and, and fairly uh, frugal. They were wealthy uh, in accounts, but not behavior. They only had one domestic servant. (gasps) Oh, how did they survive? I'd clutch the pearls if I gave a shit. Extreme. Yeah. And no one was really, the, the, the girls weren't super spoiled, but they also, well, they weren't super spoiled by, I guess, our thinking, but we're going to see what looks like a little bit of spoiling well, later. I mean, their house, their house did not have accoutrements <laughs> than, than right. normal houses. Normal houses today, you would think. It was kind of dank. Uh, it didn't have electricity. It didn't have indoor plumbing, and these were already very standard at the time. Yeah, it was a thing where Lizzie really wanted to live elsewhere. She wanted to be in the more elite neighborhood because she wanted to be able to entertain in a better style. She had her friends who were just as wealthy as her family was, and they had entertained her, and she wanted to be able to return the favor, but really couldn't in that household. And yeah, Andrew refused to move. Here. <laughs> I hear tell there are people that actually poop inside. Disgusting. Oh. That is disgusting. <laughs> you will take your ass out on a cold, cold night and dump your load in the tiny house. Scott, they, they they shit in the cellar, okay? <laughs> there's there's a there's a, a toilet some set up in the cellar, but I'm sure there's like slop buckets or something. It's it's not outside at least. At least it's not bare ass in the cold. There's, there's a bucket. That. There's a bucket. That's almost worse than bucket. pooping outside. No, yeah. I take it back. That is worse than pooping outside. Oh, so, anyhow. The 
daughter's relationship with their stepmother was not really very friendly. Uh, at first, Lizzie went along with calling Abby mother. But really, she still considered Emma her mother, and they're they're super close. And Abby was, they kind of treated her like like an unwanted guest in the house, like somebody who's stuck around too long and you really would like them to leave. She And Andrew kind of, too. She didn't get equal treatment with the daughters, that's for damn sure. She didn't have any control um, over, like, financial stuff. All three, Lizzie, Emma, and stepmother Abby, got the same weekly allowance of $4, that's $118 in today's money, from Andrew. Only Abby had to spend hers on household expenses. Here's I don't like grocery it. Grocery money. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. And Lizzie and Andrew, her father, they were very close. He actually, he wore no wedding ring, but until his dying day, he wore a ring that Lizzie had given him. A little sketch. Just, I mean, I, there's affection, and then there's unequal treatment of daughter and wife that seems like you're placing one above the other well he is but you even said in the beginning that he really just wanted like a free household servant is is what he's treating her like yeah um and, yeah and i i really think that that shines through and even the the kid's lack of respect towards her is a, a direct reflection of his treatment of her i fully agree with you yes absolutely Lizzie, in her adulthood, she was basically doing what sort of a, a lady of leisure, but who was unmarried, would do. She she was in a lot of social clubs and organizations. She was in the leadership of many of those. She did socialize in a proper manner quite a bit. And this is basically kind of her job. You know, she's unmarried. She's from a good family. This is what she do. you do. You do social stuff. She was a board member at Good Samaritan Hospital, secretary of the Fruit and Flower Mission, and treasurer for the Young Women's Christian Temperance Union. And there were times that she didn't quite act appropriately for the day. It was this was really talked about after the murders. One time, four years prior to the murders, the rest of her family was on vacation, but Lizzie had stayed home. And she rocks up to the evening service of church like the harlot she is with the family doctor. Like he was her date to church. What the and fuck, Lizzie? A doctor? Every Get out of here with this shit. <laughs> And everybody was just chit-chit-chatting about that. My goodness, did it raise a ruckus. Mm. <laughs> and the, actually, Abby's stepmother, so there's lots of stepmothers in this scenario, she said, quote, Some remarked how courageous she was to remain in the house alone, but others replied in a very knowing way, Perhaps she has acceptable company. And <laughs> throw in some 1890s swing there. <laughs> I want to hear what 1890s sexy music is like. <laughs> the penis goes in, the penis goes out. The penis goes in, then the penis goes out. That's what sex is all about. I'll do the sex, Charleston. <laughs> <laughs> you broke me again. <laughs> the sex Charleston. The sex Charleston. I imagine there's a lot of like a lot of this going on and some intricate foot moving. 
I mean, it's really the wrong era, but it's still hilarious. <laughs> okay, so 1887. There was a rift in the family that seemed to last. It seemed to just get in, inject this coldness into the family relationships that lasted for years. What happened was Abby wanted to buy out her stepmother's share in the house that her stepmother and Abby's half-sister had inherited from Abby's father when he died. So Abby wants to buy this out, but let them continue living there. And Lizzie and Emma did not like this at all when Andrew said he was going to help her out with this, when he was going to put the money up. So Andrew tried to fix it by giving them their own property at 12 Ferry Street. Now, this was actually a two-family home that had been in the family for a long time. Andrew was born there. Lizzie was born there. Emma possibly was born there. It was a little confusing. And he sold it to the girls for $1. But they still really didn't forgive him. And that was the year that Lizzie stopped calling Abby mother. Things got kind of cold. So the, the state of the household in the 1890s, there was Andrew. He was in his late 60s or mid 60s. And then kind of a, a, a frequent visitor was John Morse, who was Andrew Borden's brother-in-law from his first marriage. So his, his first wife's brother. And then you had, we mentioned the domestic servant earlier. That was Bridget Sullivan. She was in her mid-20s. But the previous servant's name was Maggie, so they just called her Maggie. You don't get your own name. We knew a name. We're not learning another one. Yeah, It's yeah. Maggie with one G, okay? <laughs> not, you're not two Gs like the original. You don't deserve a second G. <laughs> and they still, she had been with the family for a couple of years. It's not like she had just arrived like a month ago. She had been with the family for two to three years and they still called her Maggie. What the fuck is wrong with this family? Yeah. Like, didn't, didn't this family, like you, you hear about Lizzie Borden and you think, oh yeah, that's, that's the girl that chopped up her mom and dad and got away with it. But the more that you look into this family, it was like, maybe. They might've been terrible people. Yeah. Maybe mom and dad kind of <laughs> deserved it just for being fucking weird. So Bridget, not Maggie, had she'd only been in the U.S. since 1886, and she started working for them in 1889. She was 23 when she started working for them. Lizzie, in 1890, turned 30, and for her 30th birthday present, she got a grand tour of Europe, which that was the grand tour was a thing usually for young men, usually British, it was kind of a tradition, but I think it had translated over to America and sometimes the women would do it too, where you go and you spend, in her case, it was 19 weeks in Europe. How'd you like that, huh? A 19 week tour Damn. of Europe for your 30th. Thank I you. I want to do that. I want to do that now. I already turned yeah. 30, but somebody should make that happen for me. Yeah, I've turned 32, and I I, I I had a great party, but instead of trying to keep Amber from burning down the volunteer fire department, I really would have preferred a 19-week tour of Europe. Sorry, Amber. Mm. <laughs> totally cool. Totally understand. <laughs> I'll never forget you guys with your bandanas on your faces. It was actually your kitchen towel that I had tied around my face, and I still have I think, a picture of that. I think Ryan actually had a bandana on him, so he just mm -hmm. was able to do the bandit look immediately. Nope. So I... <laughs> Yeah, and, and Yuri was the other one who also had a bandana. I was the only one that apparently just doesn't carry one. So she I just grabbed one of my towels. Towel. Yeah. 
Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so, so, yeah, she went along with some other spinsters of her acquaintance. And on that trip, when it was getting close to time to come back to America, she stated that she absolutely did not want to go home to that house. Yeah, she got a taste of what normal was. I was going to say she's (laughs) shitting in toilets. Why would she want to go home? Right? 19 weeks of of not having to smell your own filth. The water washes. Water's used for something else besides drinking. Did you know that? (laughs) (laughs) now this coldness in the house was still going on in the 1890s the daughters were no longer eating with andrew and abby they would have bridget serve them their dinner at a separate time uh abby pretty much got 24 7 silent treatment unless she directly asked them a question so she could just sit there and talk and say something to them a statement hey did you hear about that harlot over town who went to church with a doctor (laughs) and they would just completely just freeze her out. So only questions were answered. Whenever, whenever this, if you, if you live in this kind of family, because certain of my, certain members of my family would do this to me, they would give me the silent treatment whenever they hated me. So what you do at the dinner table is you just sit there and make knock, knock jokes for the entire time. It amuses uh, you and pisses them off. I like it. <laughs> Even the ones that don't make sense. Knock, knock. And then because it's a knock, knock joke, you have to do both sides of it. Because you just sit there going, knock, knock. Knock, knock. <laughs> and then nothing gets done. I guess I'll do both halves myself. Knock, knock. Who's there? Pepperoni. Pepperoni who? Mangoes. <laughs> knock, knock. <laughs> Okay. See how much it's pissing you off, and you like me. Yes. For some strange reason, I haven't figured it out yet. Please continue. Because you're smart and funny, Scott. Yay. <laughs> and mildly insane. <laughs> there's, there's that, too. I still have you in my, in my phone as Scott Cult Leader. <laughs> and will for all time. <laughs> That'll be called Exhibit A. <laughs> Lizzie was at this point referring to Abby as Mrs. Borden, my stepmother. So gone were the days of calling her mother. And behind Abby's back, she called her a mean, good-for-nothing thing. And Emma also was getting in on this. She described her stepmother as deceitful and two-faced. Abby talked about this with her own stepmother, and her stepmother came out eventually and said, you could not pay me to trade places with you and deal with those brats. Yeah. I like Abby's stepmother. (laughs) But you know what? Like, I feel like... To, to be hated that much, you did something to get hated. I mean, if, if she's been around since since Lizzie was five. Okay, you know, and I'm sure most of the people who've listened, but just in case, I do not have the best relationship with my brothers and sister, so much so that I haven't spoken to them in five years. So I, I kind of like, like kind of, I went to a therapist about this, and people get pissed off at people for the stupidest reasons. What my therapist and I kind of came up with was my older brother and sister, their mom passed away. My dad married my mom. And whenever I came around, it cemented the relationship. So the and, anger and resentment was passed on to you. You got no, it. I, I get that. I do get that. But to, to specifically say that she was two faced. 
tells me that there's probably some story as to why she's two-faced. Oh, like, she probably gonna... dated somebody they didn't like and then lied about it. Keep in mind, a lot of this is pinpointed as dating back to when Andrew helped Abby by buying her some of that property. It's like you guys said, they considered her a glorified servant. She was rising above her station without entitlement to do so by asking Andrew to do that. And the insult was just compounded when he agreed to it. I mean, her money goes towards the household expenses and they just are free and clear to spend theirs on whatever they want. She is really just to them in their mind, even though, you know, Lizzie may have called her mother, but in I bet in Lizzie's mind, she was just the housekeeper. Yeah. Housekeeper okay, that her dad happened to marry. Yeah. And remember a lot of people said that they thought that, Andrew's station and so there may have been some of that leaking in too because there's already judgment from people around town and some of their friends are like you know isn't didn't he marry a little bit below his station and they would probably that would translate yeah. over well and then when she asked for, for his help and got it they're probably like she's only here for that probably some of that same idea that Andrew yeah. had where he would deny Lizzie the ability to you know even try to get a suitor to marry her because he thought that they were after his money. So they probably think anybody who marries their dad is after his money. So it, it kind of cuts both ways and it, it's passed down from, from parent to child in that case. Yeah. I mean, we're theorizing here, but it kind of seems to be a family attitude, especially with the money being so new to them. Yeah. So some trouble starts in the 1890s. June 24th, 1891, there was a strange break-in. Uh, what happened was the the items that were stolen were it was mostly Abby's jewelry and seemed like the person who the, the thief was targeting sentimental items. And there was also some money stolen from Andrew, $80 in cash and $30 in gold for what would be about 3200 today, as well as some commemorative streetcar tickets. I mean, I so say like concert tickets. Scrapbook items, pretty much. Yeah, yeah. I feel like that in particular, those commemorative streetcar tickets had to be if, as we're going to theorize, Lizzie was behind it, mm -hmm. it had to be a dig or a message of some kind. You know, there is something about those streetcar tickets. Maybe I'm, and again, I am completely just, I'm going to indulge in some rampant speculation but my idea the first thing that pops into my head is maybe andrew took abby on a trip lizzie maybe emma didn't want them to go didn't want think that she deserved that and those commemorative streetcar tickets were part of that so she's oh. stealing them in order to make a little dig you know yeah see I'm, I'm gonna throw out there i think it was a message saying i'm going to erase you Hmm. Interesting. Interesting. <clears throat> like, I mean, they could have been like their first date, their first, their one year anniversary. They went on a trip. Yeah. And, and she threw him out, and it's like, you know what? You are not part of this family, and I'm going to erase you from it. I like it. I like it. I think that that has a strong, strong possibility there. I speak no. petty. <laughs> <laughs> Episode title. <laughs> I would make it uh, Charleston sex or the sex Charleston, but I don't know if that uh, will make it onto iTunes. So I'm just going to, I'm just going to play it safe. TV. Uh, <laughs> yeah. 
So Lizzie now, she seemed to think that she had the case all solved when the police came to investigate. She took the police to the cellar and showed them the door there. And the poop bucket. And the poop bucket. But she told them, hey, look at this part of the door. I think somebody forced the lock with a nail. But the weirdest thing was that it happened during the day while Bridget, Emma, and Lizzie were all there. None of them heard a thing. And the most likely entry point would have been Lizzie's bedroom. Hmm. (laughs) Some questions being raised here. And Andrew Borden actually told the police captain, I'm afraid the police will not be able to find the real thief. And then he just kind of shooed the cops away and they didn't really have any choice but to forget the whole thing because if he's not going to cooperate in the investigation, the center's on his house. There's not a lot they can do. And if, if he's turning them away anyhow, they're like, well, fine. Don't You don't want our help? We won't give it. Whatever. Well, I get the feeling that Andrew is a lot smarter than people gave him credit for. And he's like, this is my kids. Oh, yeah. I think he knew. I absolutely <laughs> think he knew. So they started locking all their doors. Not just... The outer doors. They locked the inner doors, too. So doors to every room in the house had locks on them. And it was always you had to get the key if you weren't carrying it in order to get into a room in the house, which is speaks to a certain paranoia within the household and maybe some suspicions. In April 1892, the, the family had a barn on the property and it was broken into And in the following months, Andrew Borden kills some pigeons around the barn because he thinks that that was what was drawing intruders in. Uh, Pigeons to eat, I guess. Damn lying pigeons always telling people that there's a concert (laughs) in my barn. (laughs) He was in his upper 60s, though. He could have been starting to go a little cuckoo. (laughs) Maybe, but they're... There was a question of how did he kill the pigeons? Did he strangle all of them or did he use an axe or a hatchet? That became a question later for reasons I'm sure that are obvious. You, you guys know this case. I'm just, I'm picturing somebody just strangling pigeons. I was just like, well, that's uh, some dedication, I guess. <laughs> right? I know the way I'd do it. I would uh, get down uh, in the lotus position, uh, my samurai sword in front of me, incense on either side. Some Japanese flute music playing in the background. I do about half an hour of meditation and then just burst forth in a katana pigeon samurai bloodlust. <laughs> well, okay. Now, Thank you for you that. Now, Pardon me? <laughs> I'm just asking how old you are in case we need to start watching out for you. Uh, 47. I'm 47. Oh. I'm sure nothing will happen to any of my appendages, like a severed artery or anything like that. <laughs> <laughs> no, no. You don't have bad luck at all. On I have pretty second, good luck. I didn't bleed to death whenever I nicked an artery. My luck's was, pretty damn good. That's true, but you did nick the artery <laughs> in the first place. There was that. Yeah. On August 2nd, 1892 is kind of the beginning of a, of a couple of real bad days in the Borden household. First of all, they had a dinner of leftover swordfish and the whole house got sick. Abby and Andrew kind of felt it more than Lizzie and Bridget did. And Emma wasn't even around the house. She was, she was away. So she didn't experience this at all, obviously. But this was a thing that actually they called it the summer complaint back then. 
It happened a lot in the summertime, and for good reasons, because people would eat fish, sometimes leftover, on really hot days when they didn't have much better home refrigeration than the ice boxes they'd used in the early 1800s. So, Is it just yeah. Leftover swordfish seems like a really strange thing to eat. Even in today's day and age, I don't want leftover seafood. Right. Yeah. Yeah, same. I'm I'm with you there. Uh, but they uh, apparently there again, there was that frugality too. So leftovers were not going to go wasted in Andrew Borden's household. And I, I would be surprised if he even had an ice box. They probably just buried it in the backyard and then dug it up for dinner. <laughs> yeah. Cheap bastard. Abby was worried and went to her the, the family doctor, Dr. Bowen, and told brown him chicken brown cow. <laughs> Told him that she she thought she might have been poisoned. And he was like, No, you just ate fish in the summertime. It's the summer complaints, you know? <laughs> and stop eating leftover fish in the summer. Right? But she insisted that he come to the house to check out Andrew. But Andrew was like, No, he wouldn't even let the doctor in and was visibly angry at his presence. So like, I'm uh, not going to pay anything for this visit. <laughs> yes, exactly. On August 3rd, 1892, uh, according to some accounts, Lizzie went to the drugstore and tried to buy some prussic acid, which is kind of, sort of, cyanide, mm -hmm. uh, which is known, known as a harder poison to detect. Not impossible, but harder. And, but the druggist refused. She should have gone with flypaper. Oh, <laughs> exactly. Flypaper. Makes some arsenic. On the afternoon of August 3rd, uh, John Morse, Andrew's brother-in-law and the girl's uncle, he comes. The family has a dinner of mutton and mutton soup. He's horrified. Day after food poisoning? What the fuck? Probably still feeling fuck. it. Yeah. Morse had a chat for about an hour and a half with Andrew, and then he left to pop in on some other relatives. The night of August 3rd, everyone gets sick from having mutton stew. Uh, the thing is that Bridget had served mutton for the very first time on July 31st, four days before. So if she used the leftovers for the stew, I'm assuming it was the summer complaint again, because that is horrifying. It's August. Oh. It's mutton. This is awful. <laughs> this is terrible. There Maybe was... then you should switch to a vegetarian diet. The price still get. Oh, we died from potato salad. Yeah, that's true. Some sources say Lizzie was the only one in the household who wasn't ill, but Bridget would later say that, at least according to Lizzie, she was sick along with the rest of the family. Lizzie is visiting a, a friend, Alice Russell, and she says she thinks somebody is trying to poison her father via the milk and said he'd gotten some threats, but she couldn't say from whom or what the threats were. It was all very vague. And this is a quote from Lizzie that at the time, I feel as if something was hanging over me that I cannot throw off, and it comes over me at times no matter where I am. I don't know, but somebody will do something. Very bad. Interesting. Yeah. So it Morse may or comes may not involve an axe, everybody. I'm just <laughs> yeah. saying. Somebody will do something with an axe. I was going to let it be Morse sharp, but Dad pissed me off, so I'm going to let it be dull now. <laughs> oh, ouch. 
Morse gets home around 8.30 p.m. that night. Lizzie gets home around 9 p.m. And everyone is home and in bed by 10.05 p.m. Next day. Whoa, that's kind of creepy. It's 10.10 p.m. right now. So very close. Oh, that is close. That's weird. (laughs) (laughs) The next morning, August 4th, 1892, and they have breakfast. Their breakfast is? Mutton. Cold mutton, mutton soup, Johnny cakes, coffee, and fruit. I was joking. Worst last meal ever. Oh, I, if that was if that was what I had to eat for breakfast, cold mutton and mutton soup and Johnny cakes, which Johnny cakes are like eating wet cardboard anyway that tastes faintly of corn. I think I think probably what what these people died from was actually suicide. Honey, I'm going to give you this axe and I want you to hit me several times. I will take my axe and hit you several times as well. And we'll never have to eat this again. We'll save so much money. Not only that, but this is like the, the if they got sick off the mutton and then they're having the mutton again. Oh, my God. For they're, breakfast. They're oh. having it cold, too. Yes. And mutton soup. Oh, I don't hate mutton. I've had it once in my life and it was OK. But I just, if bre- it's, that's not a breakfast food. I'm sorry. I don't care if it's 1892, 1992. I don't care if, if you're on the, the, I don't care. It's not a breakfast food. Don't do this. So anyhow. You know what though? Like they're like England eats baked beans for breakfast. That's not like a breakfast food for us. So, I mean, maybe it's just a cultural thing. Well, yeah, and I know we come from a, a, a state where people eat something called Scrabble. So I like Scrabble. Yes, but you're crazy and psychotic, and we've talked about this. I'm going to go with Christy <laughs> on this one. <laughs> I enjoy a good Scrabble. So here's the timeline it's that went on this morning. It's a hot dog version of breakfast food. It really is. Uh, so there was some later testimony at the inquest that, that kind of established some of this Lizzie came downstairs around 8.45. The others had already had breakfast. She talked a little bit with Andrew and Abby, which was probably small talk or household stuff, I'm assuming, although probably only Abby if Abby asked her a direct question. And this may have been when Abby told Lizzie that she was going to go upstairs, finish kind of tidying up the guest room, and then go visiting. She had gotten a note that a friend was ill and it was kind of dire. So she was going to check on the friend and see what she could do to help around 9 AM. Abby was cleaning the guest room and she's on the second floor. Lizzie was in the cellar. It seems like she was uh, doing her morning ablutions and yes. Yes. What? Sorry. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) I'm not even editing that out. Fuck it. I'm leaving that in. Okay. For once, the awkwardness wasn't caused by me. (laughs) Lizzie was in the cellar. I don't know why I thought I was muted. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, you need the red microphone icon thing in order to be muted. Yeah, just a hint. (laughs) Around, so Abby's upstairs in the guest room. Lizzie's in the cellar. And Lizzie said she came back upstairs and she didn't see Abby around anywhere. Bridget had been... Uh, asked by Abby to wash the windows around the house. And Lizzie also, she started ironing some handkerchiefs. Mr. Borden left to go into town around 10 a.m., just a a little errand. Yes, Amber's giving me the look like she was ironing handkerchiefs. This is what a lady of leisure does. She doesn't have much to do. She irons some fucking handkerchiefs. Mr. Borden left for town around 10 a.m. 
And the next time Lizzie went upstairs, she saw that the guest room door was closed. And that was her last known location for Abby. Bridget reported that Mr. Borden had come home around 1030, 1040-ish. And Bridget let him in and Lizzie was in the kitchen. Lizzie sits down and reads a magazine for a little bit. She goes to the sitting room where her father is. They have a little, they chat a little bit. Then she reports that she went to the barn for 15 to 20 minutes, maybe half an hour. And what was she come, she doing in the barn? We'll get to that in the inquest. That comes up. It's a question. She comes back in and her father is dead on the sofa. Bridget puts this at around 11, 10 a.m. Uh, she had been upstairs and Lizzie called up to her saying, come down quick. So Lizzie goes and starts kind of like hanging out the screen door and a neighbor, Mrs. Churchill, sees her and asks, what's, what's wrong? Lizzie says, oh, Mrs. Churchill, do come over. Someone has killed father. Hey, this hurry, weird I thing need all of you to establish a timeline. Well, that's the thing. This weird thing happens here where she keeps getting people to come help her and then sending them off to do something else wherein she's alone. So for several minutes after the discovery of Andrew's body, she's just hanging out alone in, in the house with her father's dead body. And one would think, I mean, he was pretty brutalized. It's, it's pretty obvious that he was murdered. For all she knows, knows the murderer is still there, you know? Yeah, instead so, she's like noticing things she left behind. It was like, get out, get out, hurry, I need to fix this. <laughs> basically what happened was she sends Bridget to get Dr. Bowen, at which point Lizzie is left alone. Then Bridget comes back and she sends Bridget to grab Lizzie's best friend, Alice Russell. And then at that point she's alone again because Dr. Bowen hadn't arrived yet. Then Mrs. Churchill comes over and then Mrs. Churchill goes to get the police and Lizzie is alone. Now, Mrs. Churchill, when she gets the cops there, she starts asking questions and Lizzie tells her that Emma is off visiting friends in another town, so not even a possible suspect. And Lizzie says that she had been in the barn, heard a weird noise, come back to the house and found her father dead. And she also said, oh no, Abby's not here. She's off visiting a sick friend. Mm-hmm. Just an interesting little note that it's specifically Lizzie sent Bridget to get Dr. Bowen, the family doctor, which, okay, that's your connection. But the mayor of Fall River and two of her neighbors are doctors. So you would think maybe go next door and get a doctor might be the first, but doesn't take long enough. Maybe is also a possibility. No, but it, there was there, there was the religious divide. Yes, exactly. Mm -hmm. Yeah, they were. Both of those neighbor doctors were Catholic and there were old guard families like the Bordens and there were immigrants coming to work in the mills and some of them also becoming doctors. And so there was some tension in between those two groups of people. Dr. Bowen checks out the body and he's still warm. He's dead, but he's still warm. So it happened pretty recently. So in the kitchen, Lizzie, the neighbor, Mrs. Churchill, Alice Russell, Lizzie's friend, and Bridget Sullivan, they're in there, I guess, talking. And the neighbor reports 
something about Lizzie burning a dress in the kitchen, which Lizzie said she'd gotten paint on it. So, like, in the kitchen stove, she burned it. Human paint. Wait, like, was it while everyone was there that she's like, you know what, let me just burn this dress, don't mind me. From what I can read, it's kind of unclear, mainly because Lizzie herself is very unclear. So it, she's it, whether it was already burned and she just happened to mention that it was in the stove or whether she did it while they were there is kind of like, I don't know for sure. And we might dig into that a little bit with the trial. I don't know. I need to finish writing next week's episode. Um, so, like, No, I had the same thing because I, I was just like, when did she burn the dress? Like, I didn't find that in my stuff. That's why I was curious. We'll dig that up. So, but yeah, she said she'd gotten paint and that the police did search, but they never found the dress or any remains of it. And the neighbor also, or no, no, I'm sorry. Lizzie's mentions, oh, wait, I think Abby actually did come home and was upstairs, even though earlier she'd said Abby's gone. I so, just remembered I killed that lady in bed. I oh, could do you know? It, I couldn't hear her over the sound of all the axe sharpening going on. (laughs) Yeah. That was who was screaming. So the police go upstairs and in the guest room, they find Abby Borden dead, pretty much covered in blood. It's a gruesome scene. They come down and they tell Lizzie and her response is, Oh, I shall have to go to the cemetery myself. Like as in, I guess I have to plan some funerals. The, Abby hasn't even been confirmed dead. They're just like, we're, she might be dead. And Lizzie's like, well, guess we're going to have a funeral. I guess it's on me. Mm. To be fair, if I found out my older brother was dead, I'd go, Christy, Amber, you want to make take a field trip? Let's. Uh, I just want to go make sure he's actually dead. We're going to go to the <laughs> funeral home. I'm going to jam this long needle through his heart just to well, make sure. Probably bring, bring a priest just in case, I think. <laughs> Lizzie already had a funeral home picked out and some say that she had kind of mentally planned out the arrangements already. Although there might be a particular funeral home that the family uses. That's entirely possible that it's just, you know, a a, a sort of family loyalty thing. You, you know, we always go to to the, the, this particular mortuary and let's be honest though. She's been daydreaming about her stepmother dying for a long time. Yeah. He's probably like, I'm ready. Let's do this. (laughs) Now, Dr. Bowen at first thought that Abby had died of fright because the blood around her was coagulated (laughs) and it wasn't fresh like Andrews. Everybody knows that whenever women get scared, blood just pours from their bodies. (laughs) Why do you think they prefer to female masturbation as tending the axe wound? Haven't you ever heard of Scared her head almost severed off. I don't know what happened. Haven't either of you ever heard of the medical condition of being scared to death? (laughs) Hysterical decapitation. Hysterical decapitation. (laughs) Oh, that's in contention. That's in contention for episode seven. That might win. Yeah. (laughs) We've got we've got some real bangers here today. Yeah, he he did think at first that it was not necessarily a murder, and then he turned her over, and that delusion was dispelled pretty quickly when he saw all the wounds, and he actually nearly got sick. (laughs) 
He nearly got saved. I turned her over. The body went, but the head kind of stayed. I almost <laughs> barfed up my mutton and swordfish. <laughs> yeah, she had been struck 18 or 19 times. Uh, the skull was shattered, and there uh, actually, this uh, grossed me out, a flap of skin had separated it from the from the back, in the back of her head. Uh, it was pretty, from, from the skull. Most of, here's the thing. If you're going to murder somebody in a small town, the best time to do it is when almost all the cops are 30 miles away at the annual summer picnic. There you go. <laughs> yeah. That was near Providence, uh, and a they did send a patrolman and he found that Andrew Borden had been, as the newspaper put it, hacked to pieces. Uh, one witness said that Andrew Borden's face was a mass of raw meat. Yum. And yeah, all that mutton talks real, uh, really yeah, yummy now. Like mutton. <laughs> and he'd been hit with about 10 blows. There's, not really any other signs of a crime. Nobody nearby saw anything. Nobody heard anything. Murder weapons, completely MIA. They can't find it. And other than the brutal murder, nothing looked amiss. But then there was the brutal murders, and that kind of raised a red flag. Nothing looks amiss aside from all this blood. <laughs> yeah. The cops actually are so understaffed that they grab just some nosy bystander who's been hanging around and they make him stand guard. I hope is... that was the murderer. <laughs> well, they were they were like, here, you watch in case the murderer returns. And that guy was like, what? No, I, I, I also I love, that, I love that you said understaffed when really they're just all at a fucking picnic. Yeah. True. Yeah. <laughs> Oh. They're so understaffed, partying and drinking beer, that they just can't be bothered to come in. There's oh, you know they were having coaster. a three-legged race. You know <laughs> it. The next day, actually, there would be over 1,500 people gathered outside. That's actually nothing in our... <laughs> We've seen far, far more than that. Once word gets out, the police are there in droves, and there's a little bit of panic in town. One paper even speculates... Maybe it was Jack the Ripper, of course. Oh, everybody, 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 every murder at some point has to be Jack the Ripper. They, the police let a reporter in at some point because why keep a crime scene intact? You know, just let him just let him stomp all over the blood. And I mean, I'm all for freedom of press and everything, but the press doesn't necessarily have to have the freedom to go into a crime scene until it's been deemed, you know, um, that the police have gotten everything they need. It's you don't have a, a right to just go into any random person's house. So yeah, that's why not my feeling. Why not? Actually, some local businesses closed up for the day around noon. As word got around town, they just completely shut their doors because there was just this fear and panic. And you know, sometimes a half day sounds fun. Yeah, I'm hoping for that tomorrow. If we could get a murder in Johnstown <laughs> on top of the snowstorm. That'd be great. I'm staying home from work. <laughs> hey, well, like our our schools were already canceled. Like at seven thirty, they canceled. It's, it's. I'm surprised. It doesn't seem like it's going to be that bad, but I, I guess it could get bad overnight. So, anyhow, um, the police are like, okay, here's the big question. Aside from who did this, how how did it happen with Lizzie and Bridget not seeing or hearing anything? Bridget was around the house. 
Lizzie was near the house and sometimes in the house. How did it happen? So they start looking in the most natural place, the place where you always look. The foreigners. Must Damn foreigners. Yeah. I knew Mary Jen- Ariana would draw unwanted suspicion to the house. <laughs> <laughs> don't Generally- say that. Don't get scared. <laughs> <laughs> I do have somebody to blame now for all the bodies in the basement. I mean, they could be in the basement. This episode is sponsored by Best Fiends. So we've been playing lots of Best Fiends lately, haven't we, guys? Absolutely. We love all the cute characters and the fun, challenging puzzles. So what are you guys really loving about the game lately? I love how there are always new events happening. You know what? You can get extra keys for doing this many levels. I just love finding out what is new in the game. I love that too. Every time I update, there are new surprises. But it is level check time. I am at level 1520. How about you guys? I'm at level 841, and I don't get to say what I like about the game. (laughs) everybody just cuts me off I'm on level 2695 if anybody cares after Scott's rant nah (laughs) nah nah. (laughs) raisins all over again engage your brain with fun puzzles and collect tons of cute characters trust me with over 100 million downloads this 5 star rated mobile puzzle game is a must play download best fiends free on the apple app store or google play That's friends without the R. Best fiends. Generally, they're looking at the Portuguese immigrants. Then they eliminate a bunch of them and they start thinking that something about the crime was, quote, effeminate. So they then begin looking at a bunch of, quote, I make sure to put these things in quotes because they're offensive, Chinamen. Nothing says feminine like like murderous bloody axe rampages. (laughs) Then they start looking for a maniac. One local lawyer, who is also a former mayor of the town, said, We who have had some experience with criminals and some knowledge of crime know that murderers do not stand over the victims delivering blow after blow when they know the victims are dead. In every detail, it shows the stubborn and dogged brutality of the insane. And just like the lawyer, the whole town had theories right down to a secret society of anarchists. A couple of mediums got in on it, and of course, but of, of course also the spirits were feeling a little shy that day. They didn't really want to chit-chat, but one of the mediums did say, all right, so you should arrest Lizzie and Morse and another man and just, yeah, round those, round those three up. There's, there's your culprits. And Morse was getting the side eye quite a bit. He was a little on the eccentric side by... Ball River standards. And here's the thing an anonymous source from the Borden family, and we're going to get into theories in the uh, next episode, but just to, to give you a little detail there an anonymous source from the Borden family supposedly told the local paper that Lizzie and her uncle John Morse had something a little more than an uncle niece relationship. Brown chicken, brown cow. Not, not when it's incest. Not when it's incest. 
<laughs> okay. You want Hitler's? Or at least- That's how you get Hitler's. You know what, though? Like, with her dad trying to cock block at every turn, of course she's going to bang the family doctor and her uncle because those are some of the only men she's allowed around. You've got a very valid point there. That is something I hadn't thought of. But, yeah, you've got a very valid point. And the the family source said if she wasn't with him, she at least wanted to be with him. He was – I'm going to go ahead and say it. He was 69. Yeah. Mm. Okay. That's even that fruit's too low hanging <laughs> even for Amber. No, I love the low hanging fruit, but that's a little too low. That's like on the ground and rotting. Yeah. You know, whenever people say low hanging fruit, I just think of balls. I know. Sorry. That's the point. <laughs> yeah, okay, just making sure I'm not alone <laughs> there. I should have known. The gossip in this town about John Morse did so much damage that he had his very own angry mob trailing him. <sighs> and like, yeah, yeah like, guy who might not have done anything at all is just like I swear to God she just had a crush because she's fucking weird. Like, <laughs> <laughs> and he did alibi out as far as the murders were concerned. He said he was on a streetcar. Now the conductor of the streetcar couldn't say specifically that he was there, but both the conductor and Morse shared a specific memory of other passengers that was very vivid six priests vivid <laughs> you remember six priests and in, in all in a bunch on your streetcar i guess and the relative that he went to see did confirm that morse had been there and dr bowen actually coincidentally had been getting to that relative's house for a house call just as morse was leaving so even dr bowen could could alibi him so both of lizzie's possible lovers were at the same place at the same time yeah yeah that uh-huh. is not the murder scene yeah, right? Were they fucking each other? <laughs> I I think there was a threesome at some point. A very weird, uncomfortable threesome. She had <laughs> so, her own little reverse harem, and her, her dad was upset about it, so she just decided to take care of it. That makes sense to me. There were a few side-eyes, I think, thrown at Dr. Bowen because of that whole incident. But it had been four years ago. He just went to church it with her, and this town sounds fucking exhausting. <laughs> it does. Like... I escorted her to church because her dad was out of town and she's a young lady. So I escorted her as a proper gentleman in town. And all of a sudden, it's hilarious. But I mean, like, he probably really just escorted a young lady to church. So, okay, you can't go anywhere without people thinking that you're doing something wrong. You, you can't leave the house and, and see a man in public without people thinking that you're you're a harlot and you need that 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 S on your arm. She was showing ankle. <gasps> no. Uh, let me just oh, masturbate okay. here in the street. <laughs> and then everything you eat makes you sick. You're sick all well, the time. Well, you're eating three-day-old mutton for breakfast. Let me just masturbate and, and defecate here in the street. Swordfish. Yeah, like... And then you have to go shit in a bucket. Her life sucked. Yeah. And not, <laughs> here's the thing. If you have to eat bad swordfish and shit in a bucket, that's pretty bad. Whenever you have to eat bad swordfish, shit in a bucket, and know there's like like the, the 1900s equivalent of like $14 million sitting in the bank. That's even There's worse. It's going to just grow and grow and grow. Right. You're, you're getting angry. You're getting resentful. You want to be a proper lady. You want to date. You want to 
get some dick. 19, what was it, 19 weeks in Europe? I bet she didn't shit in a bucket once. I know. And so she came back from Europe and she's like, what the fuck is this life? Yeah. What is this? Can <laughs> we that. blame her? Dare no. I say this might have been self-defense. If she gets sick <laughs> off of the three-day-old mutton and then goes to the family doctor, I guess the gossip's tongues are going to be all a-wagging about that. Yeah, Not heaven forbid. Because like, I'm sorry, no man's going to want to fuck you. And you're like, I've been shitting for three days. Help! Like, yeah. <laughs> I have a story that I think only Amber and, and maybe Ariana knows about. <laughs> All right. Well, back to Dr. Bowen. He does act a little suspicious. See, the cops had found a bucket of uh, some rags in the basement that were bloody. And he was like, oh, well, that was Lizzie's menstrual cycle. Bridget was like, I didn't see those there before, but okay. And he also, there was a weird incident. He had scraps of paper that he said, oh, this is just a letter from my daughter. And he then burned those scraps of paper so they couldn't read it. That is really weird, I think. Weird. Yeah. Yes. I mean, the, the but, bucket of rags in the basement could have just be like, this is this is the rag bucket where we put the rags when we're on our period. And Brid Bridget just didn't happen to notice it because it was always there. And you've got three women in the house menstruating. Or <laughs> Abby's kind of in the years that I don't know that she would have been. She was early 60s, I think, if I remember right. Um, so, yeah, I mean, maybe she could she could possibly have been, but a, a little less likely. But, yeah, you, you have three to four women menstruating. There's always going to be rags in that bucket, even if they're sinking, you know? <laughs> so, see, a little weird. Bridget gets her turn under the microscope because she's an immigrant. And, and was there. And was there. And she's Catholic. And people are like, oh, her priest probably told her to murder the Bordens. Those damn Catholic priests. Uh, that's well, been like, said more than once, Amber. <laughs> yeah, yeah. There were like local nut jobs who were contacting the police and pointing the finger, specifically to point the finger at Bridget, emphasizing that, quote, true Americans will learn in time never to employ a Catholic, end quote. Uh, another uh, person who came out to accuse Bridget said that servants were in general, quote, a sly and lying class. Yeah, that sly and lying class makes your food. I wonder why everybody's getting sick. <laughs> Good work. She's probably shitting in the food because fuck them. Good work, <laughs> they Maggie. Won't, they won't even uh, call her by her real name. It's so dehumanizing. It's so dehumanizing. I, I'm totally on board if Maggie was poisoning them. Just saying. <laughs> her name is not Maggie. It's I know. <laughs> Lizzie did clear Bridget Maggie. And said she had been, you know, Bridget was washing windows during the time period that the first murder would have happened. Uh, and during when the second murder would have happened, she was in the attic where her room was, which is interesting that Bridget is so like, I don't know where anybody is, but she knows exactly where Bridget was at all these times. Lizzie starts getting some. Well, you can't trust those darn Catholics. Those darn Catholics. They're so untrustworthy. And, this, and she's a servant to boot. So she's sly and lying. Yeah, like, she might have just been keeping tabs to make sure she wasn't, like, stealing any silverware. Yeah. 
the, the police really start looking closely at Lizzie from the get-go, despite the fact that they're also looking at Bridget, John Morse, Portuguese, and, quote, Chinamen. <laughs> One of the police officers who interviewed her the night of the murders said, quote, Lizzie talked in the most calm and collected manner. Her whole bearing was most remarkable under the circumstances. There was not the least indication of agitation, no sign of sorrow or grief, no lamentation of heart, no comment on the horror of the crime, and no expression of a wish that the criminal be caught. Something that, to me, is indescribable, gave birth to a thought that was most revolting. I thought, at least, she knew more than she wished to tell. There was also the suspicious fact that that note that Lizzie said Abby had received about her sick friend, totally missing, just gone, almost definitely not torn up by Dr. Bowen and put in the uh, fire because it was in somebody else's handwriting. Not at all. <laughs> not at all. And I, I want to establish, we'll get to theories in, in the, the second episode uh, of the, the Lizzie Borden but I want to establish that I'm not 100% that it's her. I just want to put oh, that out there. I'm, here's the thing. Neither am I. Because we are all acting like we think she 100% did it. Because it's fun, I guess. Yeah, it is. <laughs> it's it's hilarious. It's a fun rhyme. Why Be not? Well, here's the thing. It, it, you want her to do it because it's almost an escape from this fucking nightmare that she's living. I wouldn't. <laughs> the poor girl had to shit in a bucket. Right. her dad. The millionaire. What's for dinner tonight, Dad? I just got done shitting in the bucket downstairs, and the smell's wafting up to the kitchen. It's making me really hungry. Oh, joy. 18-week-old dead duck. Again. <laughs> We're, like, really stuck on this. So she got food poisoning almost every single day in the summer because they don't have a fridge, and they don't keep proper, like, food safety temperatures on anything. They eat three and four day old mutton for breakfast and then vomit and shit themselves until they feel better. And then they have leftover swordfish like, and then you have to shit in a bucket. Right. Okay. What? <laughs> this is, this is the last, this is, the, this is it for talking about the, the, the sickness and the shitting in buckets. We are fixating a lot on that. I and I think Can we're, you imagine? I think this is a, uh, this horse is already dead. So you, we need to back away with our baseball bats. All right, fine. We'll throw half a sheep instead. <laughs> and then eat it four days later. <laughs> so things are starting to get a little intense for Lizzie. Her own family, she has an estranged uncle, not Morse, points the finger at her. And Abby's family is like, yeah, we think it was her. She's it was her. But Emma and Lizzie put up a five thousand dollar reward. That's one hundred and fifty thousand dollars in today's money for any sort of, you know, information that would lead to the capture of the murderer. Interestingly, they hired a Pinkerton detective, but he lasted like all of two days. And there's no explanation that I can find for that. It's weird. Like, I've got one, but I'm not allowed to talk about it. <laughs> well, just I'm just saying save the theories for the theory part. Then it's organized. Oh, no, that was to the uh, to the pooping and swordfish eating. Oh, that. that. <laughs> That's the other topic that I've banned. <laughs> no more. No more poop. I, I didn't say anything. I just said I couldn't talk about it. There was a private funeral two days after the murders. And yeah, it was supposed to be private. 
but crowds flocked to the word that I've never known how to pronounce, but I'm going to go ahead and say cortege. Uh, you know, the the kind of funeral parade, we'll call it. 25 to 100 to 4,000, depending on whether you believe the Boston Globe or the New York Times, because they both had rather different numbers. While that was going on, and the police knew that Lizzie and Emma would be out of the house, they searched the house. And then they were lying in wait at the cemetery so that five minutes after all the mourners left, they got the caskets and had the bodies so they could do some autopsies. <laughs> They're kind of actually on top of it here. On August 9th, the inquest was held, even though the autopsy still needed, like, it wouldn't be done for two more days. And once again, the businesses are like, woohoo, half day. <laughs> <laughs> Any excuse, really. The police escorted Lizzie to the station, but before they even like left the house, she's she's just constantly protesting. I've told you everything I know, but then she's also letting things slip that are new. Vague stories about how she she said, "Oh, I wanted to to leave the house ages and ages ago, but I only stayed because I cared about Abby." Which is weird cuz she really kind of didn't, I don't think. Nobody cared about Abby. The district attorney here, uh, as far as potential penalties in the future are concerned, he's, he's anti-death penalty, especially for minors and women. The latter for, quote, mostly sentimental reasons. Oh, he's a softie. He likes us because we have vaginas <laughs> and boobs. The inquest happens and Bridget is the first to testify. She says, I did some chores, washing all those windows. Uh, I... I'm very distracted by what? the fact that we're, the camera is focusing on Amber's boobs. Yeah, why? I'm, I'm not complaining. <laughs> <laughs> I'm typing on the, the keyboard that is behind my... I have a computer behind my computer, and I was typing on the other computer, but I couldn't reach it with... I, never mind. Okay, it's fine. It's just... It was an interesting moment. Thank you for that. <laughs> You're welcome. Oh, I should have pulled my shirt down so you could see my cool NASA shirt. Oh, that is very cool. And boobs. Yeah, and boobs. <laughs> so, yeah, uh, Bridget says, you know, I did the windows, did some chores, took a quick nap. The next thing I knew, Lizzie came, she woke me up, and she said that Andrew was dead, and she sent me off to fetch the doctor. She said, I, as far as Lizzie's whereabouts and movements were concerned, I, I haven't really seen Lizzie enough or hadn't seen Lizzie enough that day to really be able to help you there. Like I, I can, I got a glimpse of her here and there, but I don't have much other than that. And after she testified, she went to the Borden house, she grabbed all of her stuff. And then she was like, I'm going to stay with my cousin. Cause I bet it was uncomfortable. That sounds awkward. Lizzie is up next. And she is as vague and unhelpful as she can be. Uh, she is, she will contradict herself within the same sentence. And she's, she mentions a man who threatened her father, but is completely unable to give any sort of a name, which something like that one would think would kind of stick in your head. And when asked about a relationship with Abby, she's real wishy-washy and won't really commit to any sort of real statement about the, the status of that relationship. And then they start talking about her uncle, John Morse. And this is an example of how vague and weird she is with her statements. It's very frustrating even just reading this. They ask her how many times Morse had visited in the past year. 
And her response is, quote, not at all. Nothing more than a night or two at a time, end quote. That's not not at all. <gasps> that's <laughs> that's all. That's that's he definitely visited. And a night or two at a time. OK, well, how many times is that? Is that three times? Is that one time? Is that 10 times? Is that every week? And she's just so weird in the way that she expresses herself. Then her uncle is on the stand and he's like, yeah, for I visited uh, a lot. Once I stayed a whole year. Like, that's a lot she is yeah he had he, that particular summer he had already been in and out to visit a couple of times and he had been in town he did have other relations in town so he could potentially stay with them but i mean she it's it's either she's being intentionally vague to try to hide some secret or she was so detached from Andrew and Abby's lives that she barely even knew when her own uncle was coming to visit because she wouldn't even have dinner with them. You know, they'd have dinner with, with, with John Morse and she'd be up in her room and Bridget would serve their dinner later. So she might not even know they might not cross paths. So there's that question there of why now there is some question of whether Lizzie was even supposed to be there in the house at all. She'd actually been scheduled to go on a trip, but she postponed her own departure because she had some other obligations, she said. She, the other people on the trip did go, and she wrote a letter to one of her friends who was on this, this vacation. She said, oh, hey, I can handle chopping the firewood at the cabin where we're going to be staying because I have, quote, a very sharp hatchet. <laughs> yes, she does. And the the thing about that is the young lady who received that letter, as soon as she heard about the murders, she burned it. <laughs> so, and uh, all of Lizzie's friends who were on that trip, they just, they, they shut their mouths. They wouldn't talk to the police. Lizzie is questioned about hers and Abby's movements around the house between the point where Andrew was murdered and when Abby was murdered. And again, she's constantly contradicting herself. She's like, first she says, oh, I was downstairs when my father came home. And then later she's like, no, I was upstairs when he came home. And somebody, the, they actually called her on it, on her, her vagueness and her contradictions. And she said, I don't know what I have said. I have answered so many questions and I am so confused. I don't know one thing from the other. It's just very frustrating for everyone involved. This is a woman, though, who's who's kind of led this weird, semi-sheltered, semi-accusatory life. I could see her not having like a lot of social skills. And the thing, the other thing about that is, the author of the trial of Lizzie Borden, Kara Robertson, she points out that the you have. You know, I believe it was the district attorney performing the inquest, this man who has a job that he goes to every day and he has a schedule and he has a routine and he has purpose. And then you have Lizzie, who is this sort of aimless lady of leisure who isn't really used to accounting for her time or what she's doing or when she's doing it. And the, the days are just kind of a blur because, you know, you iron some handkerchiefs, you read a magazine, you go out to the barn, you have some pears. That's, you know kind of her day so there's this disconnect between his expectations of her and him not understanding that that's not the you know that she, maybe she really wouldn't remember that stuff because it's just another day to her up until the point where her her father and stepmother are murdered so there is that particular issue 
he can't put himself in her shoes of just basically wandering through her entire life. How the fuck do I become a man of leisure? Yeah, right? And also, that hour between when her father returned home around 10.40, 10.45 a.m., and when she found his body, that hour and her whereabouts are very important and also very suspect. She said that on the trip she was going to go on the following Monday, which was three days away at that point, they were going to do some fishing. So she had gone out to the barn three days before the trip to search for some fishing supplies and then hung out in the barn for a little while and ate some pears. Conveniently, she wouldn't have been able to see the house or anyone going in it from her vantage point in the barn. The DA also, his name was Knowlton. He talks to her about weapons in the house. She says there's an axe in the cellar, but I don't know about any hatchets. And she also mentions a couple of weird experiences she, she'd had. She'd seen a shadowy figure outside the house in the weeks prior to the murder and another one the previous winter. And then as for the bloody towels in the buckets, she did confirm that she had had what locally... We're going to learn some 1890s Fall River menstruation slang, guys. You ready? I'm ready for this. When you are menstruating in the 1890s in Fall River, you have fleas. What? I know. What the fuck? That is exactly my reaction to learning that. I want the etymology of this. Sorry, Billy. Can't go out tonight. I have fleas. Mm. The, the thing being that it's, it's such a local slang thing that it's, it's you're probably not gonna ever find out the etymology because I, I mean maybe somebody studied it maybe it's it's beyond fall river but it seemed like it was just like the local girls or maybe among her her set her group of friends that's what they called it you know like the, the only thing i can think of is that one night some some girl was looking at her boyfriend not tonight stanton i'm it bleeds <laughs> and it, bleeds. Like, it bleeds and uh, did you say fleas <laughs> no but that will be our code word and then they have a bad breakup and they'd be like yeah every time she was uh she was you know surfing the crimson tide you know she said she had fleas what a fucking weirdo and then it just it snowballs from there i like Feed to call the it bears yeah i i like to call it the red wedding ah the, the Lannisters send their regards. You know what I call it? Not my fucking problem. Yeah, I know. I hate you for that. So, um, Ariana calls it the factory is being cleaned. That, wow, that's legit. Yeah. I do call I my uh, yearly appointments with the with the lady parts doctor. I call them, uh, I, think I, I think it's a lady parts oil change or something like that. It's something along those lines. <laughs> I usually refer to it as an unpleasant probing. It's the throat culture, except you don't gag. Yeah. But yes, she does testify that she had had fleas in the days before the murder, and that was why there were the bloody rags in the buckets in the basement, and that was also why on her skirt they found a little bit of blood. And so then Emma testifies, and she says, yeah, we still had a rift with our father, but really... I was the one with the problem, not Lizzie. She was like, it was mostly me being angry at him. Lizzie was just kind of like, yeah, whatever. Because that's kind of how she was towards everything in life. She was just like, yeah, whatever. Something weird comes out about the house that he bought the girls. Remember, he bought them that family home 
or rather he, you know, sold it to them for $1 to match his gift to Abby. And he'd actually purchased it back from them two and a half weeks before the murder for $147,000 today. That was $5,000 back then. I did it backwards this time. Yay. There's, so yeah, it's, it's, some say maybe he was planning to give it to John Morse because his deal was he, some people said that he wasn't really into the idea of a will. He wanted to give that stuff away while he was still around. Although that seems like he would, being a frugal person, he would just hold on to everything and never give it away. And then there would be no will and he would die and it would just all be disputed. You know, though, like um, one of Marcus's grandmothers did that and, and like she's still around. This was years ago, but she started giving away some of her possessions so that she could see our reactions when we received them. We all got like jewelry and stuff like that. So like she still had her bank account and her house. Mm-hmm. But she started giving away just some things just so she could get to see the joy that it brought others. I mean, I essentially got a pre-inheritance. All of the grandchildren in my family did from my my paternal side. We got all got stocks when we were growing up. And so to, that was to be used at our discretion when we turned 18 for, you know, some people used it to pay a down payment on a house. Some people used it to, you know, pay for schooling, all those things. It was, it was generally for for that. And I still have some of those because I actually, it's weird. I I have an emotional attachment to these stocks because they're one of like a few things that I have left of my grandfather. Like I have some old readers digests <laughs> from like the 1940s that I found in his basement. And then I have my stocks and then I have some of my grandmother's jewelry. Like that's all I have. But yeah, so I'll, I'll always have those, those stocks. I'll never let them go. No matter how high they get. Um, whenever, <laughs> uh, whenever I go, I'm I'm doing it King Tut style. All my possessions will be buried with me. My cats, my wife, and my friends will be interred alive. <laughs> I'm gonna I'm gonna if I hear about your death and it's before my death, I'm gonna get Never the hell out of the town. guy. Don't know him. <laughs> Don't know him. Don't know him. Too late. The will's already written up. There are questions in the Borden case about that whole will idea, though, because Morse actually said, well, Andrew mentioned wanting to make a will and Andrew Borden's business manager also says, yeah, Andrew wanted to make a will, but then later retracts that statement, which is interesting. And they do start looking for the will, but it's not in the house safe and it's not really anywhere. Then we get testimony from uh, about that visit to the drugstore with the prussic acid a local drugstore clerk and two other witnesses testified that, yes, on August 3rd, 1892, Lizzie came. She tried to buy some prussic acid, and she said it was to put an edge on a sealskin cape. This is her life. We talk about, you know, bad food and bad bathroom situations, but she also has sealskin capes. <laughs> so <laughs> uh, That seems a little, cr- I don't know, sealskin Seal skin anything, that feels almost like killing a dog and wearing it. I mean, morally, no, I don't agree with it. Mm-hmm. But I'm sure it's luxurious as hell. So, Seals are I just wouldn't... dog mermaids. And they were fine with that back then. So, But yeah, the druggist refused to sell it to her. And Lizzie's story there is, I don't even know that store. I was home all day that day. I don't even know what they're talking about. And... 
the DA, Knowlton, he actually refers to her testimony at the inquest as her confession. Whoa. <laughs> I know, right? That's a little, that's going a little strong. That's, that's playing a little loose with the word confession, dude. Yeah. Calm down. <laughs> so She said but, she was going to marry me. Dude, no. <laughs> she was just sitting there reading the magazine. After the inquest, she is arrested. It is eight days after the murder. And that year, there were only two other murder arrests in Fall River, and she was the only woman. So glass ceilings, maybe? <laughs> I don't know. And really, okay, so they, they, they're not holding her in town. They're going to take her to uh, Taunton to jail, which is 17 miles north. And this is a this is a town festival, guys. We got the whole town out to go and see Lizzie get taken off to jail. They watch her taken to the train. They watch the train start out. She gets to Taunton, and there is a gathering, quote, a gathering of hundreds, a tumultuous and simply disgraceful crowd of morbidly curious people, according to the Fall River Daily Herald, and they're waiting to watch her, too. So this is very much becoming a public and media event. Now, the matron of the jail in Taunton is actually the mother of her childhood friend and had been on friendly terms with Andrew and Abby. The matron of the jail, when she took Lizzie in, she cried and she told Lizzie that she couldn't imagine her being guilty of this, this horrible murder. So let's talk about her life in jail a little bit. Then, uh, okay, keep in mind, we're dealing with old timey, what is? Did she have a toilet? <laughs> Amber, we're not supposed to talk about that anymore. Okay, I specifically meant specifically in her household, the, the dead horse you guys were absolutely mutilating. <laughs> um, she probably had a toilet, I guess. I don't know specifically. I don't know. Well, then luxury. It, yeah. All right. Keep in mind, we're dealing with old timey terms. I remember my great grandma used to talk like this. Uh, you have instead of breakfast, lunch, dinner, you have breakfast, dinner, and then supper. And dinner is actually the bigger meal of the day. So 7 a.m., bread and coffee. Go ahead. I was just going to say, my kids try to pull that shit all the time because they just learned the word supper. Uh, so, like, we'll feed them one and they'll be like, no, we didn't have dinner yet. <laughs> Sneaky. <laughs> Like, all the time. And I'm like, who taught you supper? Who taught you that? No. Like, you don't need four. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so, yeah, bread and coffee at 7 a.m. Uh, dinner was at 11.30 a.m. They would have corned beef or, you know, the day after corned beef was corned beef hash day, of course. Soup or codfish. And then supper was just tea and bread. So your final meal of the day is a little smaller. But the thing is... This wasn't always necessarily what Lizzie ate because prisoners were able to have food brought to them or order from local establishments. So Lizzie had her dinners brought in from the best hotel in town. It's they, again, other prisoners could do it, but probably they couldn't afford it. I love it. She's like, let me just door dash some steak. Yeah. <laughs> nice. Nice. <laughs> they probably have an actual icebox. She had, uh, and the, the, the matron's name was Mrs. Wright. And of course, it's always in these times, there's, you know, usually the sheriff 
and then his wife would be the matron of the jail. And that is the case here. So her friendship with the Wrights probably did get her some perks. There were no hard prison pillows for Lizzie. She got one of Mrs. Wright's own pillows. Ooh, fancy and schmancy. Yeah, Mrs. Wright also gave her a rocking chair and a stool. Her bed had actual sheets and a pillowcase. That wasn't standard. That wasn't the drill. She was jamming out like Martha Stewart when Martha Stewart got jail. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. She's good. She's in Martha Stewart jail. She was allowed to bring in some decor items to brighten up her cell. And she, okay. No saw in the boot needed for her. Yeah. This may have been her cat in the, in the, in the, the jail, not her cat necessarily from home, but just a a cat that she kind of adopted, or it may have actually been the jailhouse cat, but it spent a lot of time with her. It was, its name was Daisy, even though it was male. And she was also allowed to wear her own clothes instead of the prison uniform. So none of this dehumanizing stuff that happens to other prisoners, not for Lizzie Borden. Nope, nope, nope. While she was in jail, she snagged a complete set of William Thackeray's works through winning a second place in a reader's competition in the Boston Journal. Nice work. Good job. I think uh, Thackeray is the personal pan pizza of the 1800s. <laughs> <laughs> that was a book it reference for all you people of our age. And also, she actually, she wasn't satisfied with that. She wanted Dickens. Well, do- doesn't every lady? Every lady wants some Dickens. Mm-hmm. Um, so real quick, just on the book it reference, uh, my five-year-old has a coupon for Pizza Hut. From kindergarten. So I think this is a thing that's still done. <laughs> Yay! As a lifelong reader and very enthusiastic about it, I am very happy if, if Book It is still a thing. I think that's I great. Don't, I don't know that eating in Pizza Hut is a thing, though. So it's really <laughs> true for the useless piece of paper. <laughs> back, at, back at the jail, Mrs. Wright also gave Lizzie access to two flower boxes in the windows upstairs and let her care for the flowers. And other prisoners said she was cheerful. She was constantly singing. She liked to chat and she was living her best life in jail. She really well, is. God bless her, her heart. Her personal letters do show another side to this experience, it, especially through the winter. There was a sense of sort of hopelessness and despair that really seemed to set in hardcore and, and establish itself in her letters. I feel like there's a possibility that. She was she was two different people with two different groups. Like she was more her her true self and admitting her true feelings, even though they were more negative with her her close friends. And then with other prisoners, she would she would feel like she had to put on a, a brave face because, of course, they can go to the paper anytime. You know, she she has people she trusts and people she doesn't. That makes sense because I do that to you guys, like all the time. Where like you guys sometimes think that I might be negative, but then I go to work, which is like my jail. And then I pretend that everything is rainbows and, and glitter. So, like, I totally get that because I fucking do it. Yeah, we all we all do to an extent. I think we're we're different people depending on what is required of us in the moment and who we're around. And I just think that was a result of what she was doing. But yes, she was she was spoiled as hell for a prisoner. Absolutely, I'm not oh, I'm not absolutely. denying like, that. Like, if that was my jail experience, I would be totally okay with going to jail. The prison did have church services, but Lizzie, who had gone to church frequently outside the house, 
sometimes with the family doctor, in never the went to church. <laughs> but sure. And the sheriff was really hardcore about making sure that her privacy was airtight, especially from the press. She was only, she had to approve all visitors and anyone she, she talked to. She had full control over that. Anyone else find that wording weird? Her airtight? Her privacy is airtight. Her mm. privacy is airtight. Privacy is airtight. <laughs> That's a porno term. It sounds like it, doesn't it? No, that seriously is a porno term. One the one the butt, one in the vajoo, and one in the mouth. The woman is now airtight. Airtight. Mm -hmm. Oh my gosh! So there was lots of support forthcoming <laughs> for Lizzie Ed from home. I'm sure there was lots coming for Lizzie. At least <laughs> various three. societies and groups would uh, have petitions circulated. They would send telegrams. I'm ignoring you two. <laughs> Some of them went even further and said the police are persecuting her and they wrote letters to the police, to the papers, to officials, etc., etc. A local doctor, not Dr. Bowen, but a local doctor <laughs> said to the police, quote, I think the whole lot of you fellows better put your heads in soak. The idea of trying to fasten the butchery of Mr. Borden on his daughter and letting the fellow escape is outrageous in the extreme. He called the police asinine servants of the law and said, a coat of tar and feathers would be your just desserts. Let it out, guys. Let it out. Come on. <laughs> I think we're just getting the giggles. Yeah, I yeah, really am. Yeah, yeah. yeah said asinine. I just went all first grader. <laughs> So, I think I'm okay now. The preliminary hearing comes around. Unlike the inquest, this is open to the public. And this is some fascinating terminology from the, the press of the day. It's noted that there's a healthy mix of both calico and silk in attendance. So, the plebes and the, the, the wealthy, the, the, the elites, are both there. I just thought that was an interesting way of establishing it. The calico being like, you know, calico dresses, especially uh, being a more common uh, commoner's garb, essentially. There were 300 spectators and more than 30 re reporters who managed to get in with tons more people stuck outside, of course. And then the medical experts are like, well, we need more time. So they postponed the whole thing. <laughs> so, but Lizzie has been brought to town for this, so that means she sticks in town and visits are easier. So the matron reports that Emma came to visit Lizzie and loud voices came from the cell. The conversation went like this. Lizzie said, Emma, you're giving me away. Emma replied, I only told Mr. Jennings, that's the family lawyer, what I thought he ought to know. Lizzie said, you have, and I will let you see I won't give in one inch. Little weird. Little shady. You know? That's... It's, it's maybe, maybe not, because, like, Lizzie's like, no, we didn't hate our stepmom. And she's like, no, we fucking hated our stepmom. And so yeah. Lizzie's like, you shut up? I don't want them looking at me like that. <laughs> that is true. That is true. Like, There's definitely a, a couple logical explanations for that. So... The preliminary hearing actually starts, and when Bridget, Bridget testified, quote, Emma Borden sat with her gloved hand shading her eyes. 
Meanwhile, Lizzie got a little bit flushed and people generally said that people who knew her were like, well, that's when, when she's feeling any uh, emotion, she gets just a little flush. It, it doesn't, not a specific emotion. Any emotion makes her flush a little bit. Maybe she was turned on. Maybe she kind of had a crush on Bridget. There are actually, we'll get into that. I know. <laughs> yeah, I want to see that cool. fan art. Oh, there's a movie. Uh, it's a... Uh, Kristen Stewart and yeah, there's uh, probably also a porn. There's actually a pornography porno porno actress named Lizzie Borden. <laughs> there's your forty wax. <laughs> She's also a professional wrestler. Okay, so I'm I'm gonna somehow move past that. I don't know how. Honestly, I don't because that is amazing. But <laughs> we have to get through this someday. So Bridget's testimony in, she said that she let Mr. Borden in uh, at that time. She heard Lizzie laugh at the top of the stairs and Lizzie then came down and chatted briefly with Mr. Borden. Her account of the morning indicates that really Lizzie was the only one who had the opportunity to do it. No one could have, entered or left the house because remember there's that whole thing with they always lock the doors lizzie or sorry bridget had to let mr borden into his own home because all the doors were locked and he didn't have his key bridget also testified that she hadn't even seen lizzie cry at all the day of the deaths then they have the druggists testify, and it turns out he's not so great at actually identifying people. There are stories told about him. One time, this actually happened. He was in Boston, and he mistook a man on the street for someone else, hit the guy, and got arrested. He's like, I have beef with you. Hit the guy, got arrested. Wasn't even that guy. <laughs> so maybe not the best source of identification. Yeah. Yeah. Maybe not. And even though he said he'd never had somebody just waltz in and order prussic acid like that, there were other reports that there had been two other requests for it from women in town that very week. One of them from a woman who was known to look very much like Lizzie Borden. <laughs> so she's over here like, I, I, I asked for that. I was, that was, that was yeah. me. Yeah. Not her. It was me. Do you and see my for, lovely seal skin coat? <laughs> <laughs> as for the poison idea, medically, witnesses, uh, medical professionals testified that there was no poison found in the Borden's stomach and they couldn't identify the murder weapon. They couldn't. They, honestly, we don't know for sure that this murder was done with an axe. So Lizzie Borden took an axe, gave her father 40 wax. Which it wasn't Might. 40. Yeah, well, yeah, it was, wasn't 40. Might not have even been an axe. Might not have been Lizzie. So <laughs> it might be every aspect of that. It might not even be an axe. There's, you know, stuff we'll get to later. But yeah, it's but very, it, it, it does rhyme. It's, it's, it's catchy. We all remember it from childhood. But they're, they do have, you know, axes and hatchets from the Borden house, but there's no incriminating material that they find. Really, Again, though, 40 wax, 41, any number above 20 would do. Yeah, they could have gone 20 and 21. Yeah, 30, 31, yeah. 50, 51. It all would have worked. Mm -hmm. 11, Even some of the 12, numbers. No. That 13, 
13 yeah. works for scanning. Gave her father 13 wax. When she saw what she had done, she gave her mother 14. Oh, no. Okay, you're right about that. Yeah. Yeah, I forgot about the second verse. I wasn't thinking about the second verse. I composed my poetry in the moment, Scott. <laughs> when she saw what she had done, she gave her mother 10 and 1. Oh! Oh! Oh, oh. damn! We got a Lizzie Borden poetry jam in the house. Why isn't it 10T1 and 10T2 and 10T3? Because we're weird. So, anyhow, <laughs> take it to shower thoughts, Scott. Okay. <laughs> That's a good point, though. Right? What the heck fuck is this 1314 bullshit? 10T1, 10T2. 10T1, 10T2. <laughs> okay, so uh, the DA then spent, this has to be the hardest episode I've ever done. <sighs> I'm sorry. You get past 1110 and Scott and I just go fucking downhill. <laughs> like <laughs> Number 100 is the one that breaks me. <laughs> I'm seriously about to cry laughing and laugh crying. I'm not sure which. It's a little bit of both. Why not both? Yeah. <laughs> Christy broke. And then... We ruined her. <laughs> so, okay, please. Okay. I don't know if you can see this. I actually have tears in my eyes, too. The DA actually spends two hours reading Lizzie's quotes from the inquest. Because remember, he called it her confession. And really, he, he definitely makes the time in the barn seem more damning than other witnesses have. And the judge says, yeah, we have probable cause to indict. And but he, he did say, if it were a man, there wouldn't have been any question, which is kind of uh, indicative of attitudes of the day. Although when he announced indicative. his ruling, <laughs> indicative, when he announced his ruling, he could barely speak. He was so emotional about this. Lizzie actually said the most ironic words that have ever been spoken in the history of 100 episodes of old-timey crimey when it was announced that they were going to go ahead with the charges it is better that i get my exoneration in a higher court for then it will be complete oh you just want to look at her and go oh honey <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It so will not. They're going to make a rhyme. <laughs> They're going to make a nursery rhyme. Children will do jump rope to your murder, lady. Yes. So, the portos press, will be made. The yes, will be made. That's what we learned today. The press is still having a field day with this whole case. So, a few weeks after the arraignment, the Boston Globe publishes an article called Lizzie Borden's Secret which says that she was pregnant. Andrew had found out and said, I will toss you out if you don't reveal the father to me. And all that happened on August 3rd. It also recounted conversations between John Morse and Lizzie and between Lizzie and Bridget, as well as between Lizzie and someone to whom she tried to sell Abby's watch from which went missing in the robbery. And even that Lizzie had asked a lawyer about what kind of order of succession there was in inheritance. Like, you know, if my father dies, does my stepmother get all the money or do I have to kill her too? You know, essentially that. This was a giant fucking hoax. 
this was okay the globe's crime reporter his name was henry tricky which i love for a crime reporter i don't know why but i love it it's great it's tricky uh uh it's uh, tricky, it's tricky. <laughs> he had basically bought this scoop from a pi who said he got it from the government's files for five hundred dollars that's $14,766 in today's money. So not a cheap scoop. And the paper rushed it because they didn't want anybody else cutting in on their big news. And within, within the day, the paper figured out they had been fooled. They had been trickied. <laughs> and then they retracted it and apologized. But this was a huge scandal that they published this and basically the PI made everything up and, and admitted to it. He was like, yeah, we just like put all this stuff together. We were like, what's our explanation? Blah, blah, blah. <laughs> Jennings is the family lawyer. He hired a lawyer named Adams. Both of them had fees of $15,000, which is $442,000 in today's money a piece. So they grabbed another lawyer, George Robinson, and he's really important here. He's a former congressman, former governor. He's called an image maker. He charged $25,000, which is $738,000 in today's money. So the total legal fees there come to over $1.5 today. That had better be one all-star defense team. You better have, like a real rock solid defense with these people. The question of sanity does come up and people are really torn on this. Some people are like, well, she's so calm and rational that she couldn't have possibly done it. And others are like, well, she's under so much stress, but she's still calm and rational. So she must be nuts. <laughs> you know? So you can't win either way. People are going to think she's you're a wrench. <laughs> yeah, you she turned me into a duck. It is Massachusetts. I got uh, that. The, pro <laughs> the prosecution does float this idea of temporary insanity, but the defense attorneys are hearing absolutely nothing of it. They will not allow a doctor exam. Basically, their game plan is we cannot show any sign that we think are anything but innocent. They're, they're taking it for, for a 100% exoneration. They don't even want to even try an insanity defense. They're going for absolutely clean, 100%. She didn't do it. No question of sanity. Their family history is investigated. There's some questions as to her mother's sanity. And also, of course, discussion of whether or not the fact that she had fleas had influenced her behavior. Doctors and even renowned, world-renowned psychologists thought that women were more likely to commit crimes during the Red Wedding, or as Amber calls, the not-my-problem. Are, are they not? <laughs> I haven't had in like 20 years. And Amber's the most dangerous of us all, Scott, so doesn't that answer your question? Maybe yes, she's on an invisible period all the time. I don't know how this <laughs> shit works. I'm a dude. No, you don't. I don't, no, spe you don't. I don't speak PMS. <laughs> so... But yeah, they, they thought the most dangerous time for women was when they were menstruating and also probably for those around them. There were also questions from the public and the media about whether her time in jail, despite it being pretty cushy, 
was just too much for her psychologically. And so there were rumors that she'd been taken to the state hospital. That is unlikely. She would have had to have been admitted to the regular hospital for that. And there are no records. So physical illness in May, she got bronchitis or tonsillitis. So two days before the jury selection, she's actually taken to a hospital cell at the jail in New Bedford where the, the full trial will occur. And uh, real quick, all right, so jury selection is going to start on uh, June 5th, 1893. But there's a lot of other talk going on that day because there's been another ex-murder in Fall River. Bum, bum, bum! I know, right? So everybody's talking on the same days as jury selection about this murder on May 30th of Bertha Manchester. She was 22. The murderer struck her 23 times. Uh, he hit the back and base of her skull. And there, again, 23 times excessive wounds, just like the Bordens. It also happened during the day. One paper called him Jack the Chopper. I fucking think they're clever. And most of the press credited him with the Borden murders, too. They were like, oh, at last. Here we go. Wait, Here's what? the culprit. Jack the Chopper? Jesus I know. Christ. Give me 13 seconds. Max the axe. Done. There you go. Yeah. But you got it. They want to make those Jack the Ripper connections, especially if they're connecting him to other murders. Jack the Whack. There you go. Yeah. 26 they seconds. Done. <laughs> Motherfucker. Go back in time and be an old-timey newspaper reporter, Scott. I'd put in too many references to masturbation. You really would. I really would. But the thing is, is that they do find the culprit, most likely. It is farmhand Jose Correa de Mayo. De Mello? Not sure. Uh, and they find him on June 4th, the day before jury selection for the Borden trial starts. He worked for Bertha Manchester's father on the Manchester farm, was pissed off about his wages, and he did confess to the Manchester murder. But as for the Bordens, he wasn't in town when that happened. He'd actually only been around Fall River for a couple of months. At this point, Lizzie has been in jail for almost 10 months, and what is about to begin is what the Providence Journal will call one of the greatest murder trials in the world's history, held in New Bedford, Massachusetts, is where we will pick up again next week when we're going to talk about the trial, the aftermath, theories, as we referenced here, and some other weird shit that is uh, not in a bucket, just shit that uh, occurred around the murder that people were being wacky and weird. Non-bucket shit. Non-bucket shit. We got some non-bucket shit to talk about. So yeah, Always we're going to talk plus. all that... All that fun stuff comes next week in Lizzie Borden Part 2. <sighs> okay, so my quick bullshit here. If you're not uh, interested in the Patreon, you can still get a shout-out on the show by donating to our PayPal via uh, our email address, oldtimeycrimey at gmail.com. Don't forget we have merch that is oldtimeycrimey.redbubble.com. Some of them say not safe for work. Once you click and say it's okay, you can see everything is fine. But there's all kinds of stuff there. It's great. Go give it a look and see if you might enjoy something. If there's any ideas you have for merch that you might like, uh, send us an email. Uh, I already said the email, but I'll give it again. OldTimeyCrimey at gmail.com. We are also OldTimeyCrimey on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. 
And so you should come and visit us. Scott does a fantastic job of putting up media related uh, on, on the Facebook and the Twitter. And I completely fail at the Instagram because it drives me nuts. I can only do it from my phone. What the fuck is up with that, right? It pisses me off so much. I don't want to type on a little phone. I want, what so am anyhow. I supposed to do? Okay. I, I have like a $32 subscription that I pay for month to month on a potato. Yeah. So there you have it. So probably the Twitter or the Facebook are your best bets if you want any actual content. Just being honest about that. Check out other podcasts from us. Uh, Scott has Good Morning Cybertron, where he is Scott, but even Scottier. <laughs> and he's super Scotty. I'm the leader of that one. They can't if wrangle me in. If you're offended by this, go listen to that. See how oh. offended you get. Holy shit. <laughs> you're you offended have... by this. You didn't get this far. <laughs> you have no idea. Yeah. The air conditioner so, episode was horrid. I'm a little ashamed of myself. Not really. Wow. <laughs> and there it is. And also uh, over on Detectives by the Decade, where I talk about the history of forensics and detectives and short stories, short podcasts, where I and Chris Garcia talk about, um, I bet you can't guess, short stories. So there is all that. Oh, if I forgot anything, I don't care right now. Honestly, I'm tired. Um, this has been a kind of an epic show, and I had to wrangle these two children the entire time. And at one point, I was both laughing and crying, but not 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 crying from the laughter. It was also just plain crying. So, <laughs> sorry. So, what are we doing this week, guys? I'm going the fuck to bed. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I got to make a bunch of Valentine's Day treat bags so that they can be quarantined properly before Valentine's Day. I was going to say, which this episode will air like closer to Valentine's Day, but I was going to say it's the 31st. But then also, yes, there is that. Uh, so um, I'm having a tooth extracted on February 15th. Oh, right. The day after fun. Valentine's Day. I'm well, sure that's going to well, go just fantastically. Yeah. Uh, I'm going to read. And work are the two things I'm gonna do a lot of. So that's 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 my schedule. So yeah, um, I think, yeah, that's that's everything. Thank you for listening to our filthy words. We are exhausted. Thank you for sticking with us for a hundred episodes. It means the fucking world. It really does. I can't even tell you how proud I am. Uh, that we made it this far and uh, we have all of you to thank for listening because if none of you had listened, we probably would have stopped bothering a while ago. And a big fat welcome to new listeners, which we knew, know we have uh, some of you. We hope you stick around. We hope you enjoy us. Uh, you guys have anything else to say? No? No? Buy Just war silence. bonds. Buy war bonds. <laughs> Lizzie Borden porn exists. And yeah, so we will see you next week for Lizzie Borden part two. We're going to finish this shit up next week. And bye. 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 My sources this week are The Trial of Lizzie Borden by Kara Robertson, The Evening World by the Library of Congress, Deborah Allard on the Herald News, Professor Douglas O. Linder and his law students on FamousTrials.com, LizzieAndrewBorden.com, Diana Griffiths, the Hatchet, a journal of Lizzie Borden and Victorian studies. William F. Hanna on the Old Colony History Museum. NewEngland.com, Murder by Gaslight, and LizzieAndrewBorden.com. My sources are Murderpedia.org, Wikipedia.org, SmithsonianMag.com, Lizzie-Borden.com, 
famous-trials.com, and factinate.com. My sources this week are biography.com, history.com, crimemuseum.org, smithsonianmag.com by Joseph Conforti, cbsnews.com by Aaron Morarity. <laughs> 